KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, strict housing segregation in America meant black people got poor schools and abusive policing. But historians are now showing that wasn't simply the result of white people refusing to live near blacks. Segregated housing was the result of a carefully organized long-term effort to establish a legal basis for systematic racial discrimination. And that legal basis was not the work of white power groups or the KKK. It was realtors' organizations. For that history, we'll turn to Eric Foner later in the show. First up, racial justice and injustice in America today. We're relieved by the guilty verdicts and life sentences for all three men charged with murdering Ahmad Arbery in Brunswick, Georgia, but we're still thinking about the not guilty verdict for Kyle Rittenhouse, charged with shooting three people, killing two during the street protests over the police shooting of a black man, Jacob Blake, in Kenosha, Wisconsin. For comment on that trial and its broader significance, we turn to John Nichols. John Nichols, of course, is the nation's national affairs correspondent. We reached him today in Madison. John, it's been a grim week for Wisconsin and for all of us. Yeah, it sure has. And uh, the Rittenhouse ruling, I don't think was a terrible shock to a lot of folks. I think an awful lot of folks uh, saw it coming and, uh, and it kind of anticipated that it was going to end up the way it did. But that didn't in any way change the reality that it's it's an awful ruling. In addition to letting Kyle Rittenhouse off, it sends a terrible signal about armed people coming to demonstrations, potentially provoking, you know, difficult situations and ending up shooting people and claiming self-defense. So it, it really did open up a bad, bad line. To review the case briefly, Rittenhouse was 17 years old in August 2020. That made him too young to legally possess the AR-15 he brought to the street protests in Kenosha. He said he went there to provide protection for local businesses. That's, a, of course, a familiar argument of the far-right gun people. They say the police can't or won't provide protection, so it's up to armed vigilantes to do it. Of course, that means armed white vigilantes. And it wasn't surprising that a teenager with a big gun provoked a reaction. Joseph Rosenbaum is a person with a history of mental illness who had been released from the hospital that day. Allegedly, he grabbed at Rittenhouse's gun. Rittenhouse then shot him four times and killed him. Anthony Huber apparently hit Rittenhouse with a skateboard. Rittenhouse then shot and killed him. George Grosskreutz felt his life was in danger when he saw Huber killed. He reached for a weapon, and then he was shot and wounded by Rittenhouse. Rittenhouse claimed each shooting was self-defense. And the judge told the jury to focus only on whether Rittenhouse felt in danger each time he fired his gun. Let's start by talking about that judge, Bruce Schroeder. For starters, he had a Trump rally song for his cell phone ringtone. Yeah, um, there's some people who say, well, maybe he's just a, not, a, not a fan of good music. In fairness to the guy, uh, I guess it's a popular song. But that did unsettle people. It went off in the middle of the trial. But boy, if that was the only thing, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't entertain the conversation. That just was on top of everything else. From the start of the trial, Judge Schroeder 
uh, seem to have a, a steady bias against the prosecution. I don't say that casually. I, I grew up in these courthouses. I, I'm from southeastern Wisconsin. I've been in the Kenosha County Courthouse from childhood and Racine County up to the north of it as well. And Schroeder's been there for a very long time, more than 40 years, and is the senior judge on the circuit courts in Wisconsin. So he's, he's, he's not some guy who just wandered in off the street. He is a, a, an established jurist. And you would expect he would know how to handle a trial. But at every turn, his handling of this trial was deeply troubling. It started at the very beginning where he said that the victims of a shooting couldn't be described as victims, even though it's, it's the common parlance of society, and it's certainly done in, in trials, but, but he barred the prosecution from using that term. And, and I think that really set the tone for the trial, because in many senses, the fact that two people were dead and another person was, was really very, very badly wounded by Kyle Rittenhouse was sort of pushed to the side and Kyle Rittenhouse became the victim. And, and that was the obviously the defense's argument that somehow uh, this guy who showed up with a gun was marching around the streets uh, in a town that wasn't his, his town, quote unquote, protecting people who said they didn't ask him to protect them. And he shoots and kills these people. And somehow he's the victim. And obviously that was a big part of how the, the defense advanced their case. But there's another element of this, too. Even beyond that, again and again and again, Judge Schroeder interrupted the prosecution when the prosecutor was trying to make a point or trying to do something. He said, oh, you can't do that or you shouldn't do that. He argued openly with the, the prosecutor in the courtroom. Uh, he shut down lines of questioning that, that seemed quite legitimate. And then when the defense would go on a line of questioning that was at least as questionable or as troubling as anything that the prosecutor did, and the prosecutor brought that up, the judge would yell at the prosecutor for bringing it up. And, and you can't have watched this trial, as I did, and come away with a sense that that judge was even-handed. It just that, that, that didn't feel at all even-handed. And then you got to the jury instructions. And the jury instructions were unimaginably convoluted. They, and I've, again, I've sat through a thousand trials. I've sat through trials in that, that courthouse. These jury instructions were a mess. And they were such a mess that Judge Schroeder inter interrupted himself in the midst of reviewing them and said, I don't like what I'm saying here. <laughs> and then entertained a lengthy conversation about how he could say it better, during which the attorneys, like the defense attorneys, would say, well, maybe you could do it this way. And he'd go, oh, I like that. You know, this is the guy who's supposed to be in charge of the courtroom looking again and again, A, like he was biased, and B, like he wasn't particularly competent. Well, then afterwards, of course, we got the reaction. The far right, uh, the white nationalist neo-Nazis, especially a website VDARE, tweeted, Kyle Rittenhouse is the hero we've been waiting for. But the really scary thing was it wasn't just the far-right neo-Nazis, it was the Republicans. Uh, of course, starting with, with Trump, who, of course, tried to make money off of the verdict, sending out a fundraising email, uh, cheering the acquittal, claiming the trial was, quote, nothing more than a witch hunt from the radical left who want to punish law-abiding citizens, including a child, in all caps, for doing nothing more than following the law, close quote, Donald Trump. Marjorie Taylor Greene said Rittenhouse was one of the good guys who, quote, help protect and defend. 
Matt Getz, Paul Gosar, and somebody, I don't know, Madison Cawthorn of North Carolina, all Republican members of the House, public, all of them publicly offered Rittenhouse a congressional internship. His only qualification is that he killed people in a street protest over the police shooting of a black man. The Republican Party embracing Rittenhouse as their hero is really ominous and scary. Of course it's ominous. You didn't even note that Gosar proposed to arm wrestle Matt Gates for who got to have Kyle Rittenhouse as their intern. So you're looking at people who, uh, in addition to being jarringly, scorchingly wrong in what they're, what they're saying about this and how they're approaching it, they, there's almost a, a levity to it, a, a, a sense of it's sort of a casual uh, humor in a situation where two people are dead and another wounded and they got no justice. This is a case where let's say that, that a jury decided, well, we're not going to charge Kyle Rittenhouse with murder. We're not going to convict him of murder because this, there are all these extenuating circumstances. They said something like that, but, but they didn't do that. They, they threw out every charge. And, and so the families of the dead were left sitting there with, with nothing from, from our judicial system. No no sense of justice, no sense of, of closure, no sense of accountability. And you have these Republican members of Congress joking about it, but almost gleeful in their, in their rush to make uh, Kyle Rittenhouse a, an intern or something like that. And you do have to juxtapose it with what else happened last week, because you had Gosar, Paul Gosar from Arizona, censured by the House uh, for posting videos in which he imagined himself killing Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez with knives. And and Gosar said that the reason that he put that video up or that his staff put that video up is because they wanted to communicate with young people. He wanted to reach out to young people. I'm not kidding. This is what he said. So you're starting to see a Republican Party here that is embracing and encouraging some of the worst possible responses to the divided, you know, the divided realities of our nation. We do have divisions. We do have people that disagree with each other. And instead of saying, you know, look, we got to find some way to, to work, to, to close some of these gaps. No, they're, they're saying, look, we, we want to dig in deeper. We want to encourage uh, more of a, you know, of a reaction to things that is so visceral, so cruel, so dangerous. And I do think, you know, look, there's no way to candy coat it. The signal from the Rittenhouse trial that went out was that this so-called self-defense argument can be extended in radical ways. Uh, and as Russ Feingold, the former senator from Wisconsin, said, uh, this is going to have a huge impact on the exercise of First Amendment rights. Because if people want to assemble and petition for the right of redress of grievances, if they want to exercise their free speech rights, they now have to potentially confront the reality that somebody who doesn't agree with them is going to show up with a powerful weapon and that if they cross this person, they might get shot. Well, uh, let's talk about the other big thing that's happening in Wisconsin politics right now, how Wisconsin is leading the way in trying to rig elections so the Democrats can't win. Tell us about Senator Ron Johnson's attempt to get rid of the bipartisan Wisconsin Elections Commission. Yeah, it's it's sort of surreal. And and there are days in Wisconsin where you, you, you wonder whether you can keep up with everything bad that's going on. And remember, this is in a state that historically, well, the one thing we could say, it's always been superior to Minnesota. And, <laughs> okay. uh, but, 
you know, historically, Wisconsin and Minnesota were these two sort of relatively progressive states up in the in the upper Midwest. Uh, Minnesota is still quite progressive. Wisconsin, you know, again and again, you're seeing these these very bad uh, signals, bad developments. And uh, in the case of elections, the Republicans in Wisconsin have been you know, kind of uh, on a crusade to get rid of the elections board or at least to dramatically weaken it because it's nonpartisan, because it actually tries to organize fair elections. Wisconsin is a closely divided state. There's no question of that. But since 2016, in statewide election after statewide election, Democrats have narrowly won. They won the governorship, the lieutenant governorship, the attorney general's seat, state treasurer, secretary of state, two Supreme Court races, one uh, by candidates supported more by Democrats than Republicans. And in 2020, they narrowly won the state in the presidential race. So every major election, essentially, over the last uh, five years, Democrats have narrowly won. What is the Republican strategy to respond to that? To get rid of the nonpartisan election board that organizes fair elections that are close, but that lean a little bit Democratic, and to put, in Ron Johnson's view, to put the legislature effectively in charge of oversight of elections, the legislature being Republican controlled, and you know to to implement sort of a Donald Trump vision for how to hold elections. Now I will tell you that there are even some Republicans who have said, "I don't know how we would do that." Right? You know, I mean, it, there's there's it is so convoluted and so coming out of you know the twisted murky brain of Ron Johnson that it is is very hard to figure out how you would actually have a legislature run elections. But he's playing games with this, and why? People across the country should be paying close, close attention to this, as they should be paying close attention to gerrymandering fights in North Carolina and, and struggles in a whole bunch of other states, is that this all adds into a whole as we head toward 2022 and 2024. It's an important thing to remember about 2024. Donald Trump is running for president of the United States. He is all but certain to be the Republican nominee. If that is the case, if those two pieces come together, in November of 2024, he will claim victory. There's no doubt of that. The difference is that unlike in 2020, where you still had at least some infrastructure there that was trying to resist that, you see people like Ron Johnson and Republicans in battleground states like Wisconsin trying to really rig the system. And you tell me what happens when it's a close result and Donald Trump is in 2024 saying, I don't like what happened in Wisconsin. It's too close. I, I think I won there. Our Constitution, very poorly written in this regard, allows state legislatures to pick their representatives to the Electoral College. It doesn't have to reflect the popular vote of the state. The legislature can do as it chooses. If legislatures start to decide to overrule the voters, we're in a meltdown of democracy moment at that point. And I think what you're seeing in Wisconsin is sort of laying in place some of that, that threat, so that, that possibility. To end on one more promising note, Ron Johnson is up for re-election. Tell us about the candidate who's challenging him. Well, there's a bunch of candidates that are challenging him. In fact, that Ron Johnson is such a delusional conspiracy theorist that there is a sense that even in Wisconsin, a closely divided state, that this guy can be beat. He's, he's been awful on COVID. He's been awful on Trump stuff. But he's awful on everything. And, and it all adds up. And there is a sense that he is one of the most unlikable people around. And then you know, maybe you can beat this guy. 
So a number of people have stepped up. The lieutenant governor of Wisconsin, Mandela Barnes, who's a, just a remarkable figure, uh, who was a community organizer, got elected to the legislature, comes from a union working class background in one of the toughest neighborhoods of Milwaukee and has accomplished an amazing amount in his early 30s is is running. He's got support from Working Families Party and folks like that. But there are other very impressive candidates. The uh, the state treasurer, Sarah Godlewski, who blocked Scott Walker's efforts to turn to make the state treasurer's office non-elected so that he could then take charge of another part of state government and then won the office, uh, really beating the Republicans in two times in two different ways, is running. Very impressive candidate. There's a guy named uh, Tom Nelson, who was a, a big Bernie Sanders backer. He is the uh, executive of Outagamie County up in northeastern Wisconsin. And Outagamie County is a swing county that has voted Republican. And so here you've got a guy who's a Bernie Sanders backer who has repeatedly won major office in a Republican area. So you got these, these different candidates running. They're competing, frankly, right now in a very congenial way. I mean, they're not Hopefully they'll continue uh, not picking on each other, but aiming their their uh, fire at, at Johnson. My sense is that at this point, I think it's there's pretty good evidence that Mandela Barnes is leading in the race. And you're going to have a, a face down with Ron Johnson in who hasn't, by the way, announced for reelection, but is expected to run for reelection. Um, you're going to have a face down there, which probably will be the preeminent Senate race in the country in one of the most closely divided states in the country. And I can only hope, John, that when you and I talk to each other in November of 2022, it will be to uh, for our sort of like recalling all the horrors of Ron Johnson as we usher him out of office. John Nichols, read him at thenation.com. John, always great to have you on the show. Thanks, John. It's great to be with you. Same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Racism in America for decades led to strict housing segregation. Black people were restricted to particular neighborhoods of cities and towns, north and south. And then those neighborhoods got poor schools, poor public services, and abusive policing. But historians are now showing that that was not simply the result of white people refusing to live near blacks. Segregated housing was the result of a carefully organized long-term effort to establish a legal basis for systematic racial discrimination. And the group that succeeded was not the KKK or white power organizations. It was the realtors groups. For that history, we turn to Eric Foner. Of course, he taught American history at Columbia for several decades. His work on the history of Reconstruction has won the Pulitzer Prize, the Bancroft Prize, and the Lincoln Prize. He's also written for the New York Times op-ed page, the TLS, the LRB, and The Nation, where he's a member of the editorial board. Eric. Welcome back. Nice to be here, John. Well, you wrote about the history of housing discrimination for the L.A. Review of Books about a new book called Freedom to Discriminate by Gene Slater. It's about California, which set the standard for the legal basis of racism in housing. 
During the early 60s, California had a strong movement to ban racial discrimination in housing. Mike Davis and I wrote about it in our book on L.A. in the 60s. L.A. saw a lot of direct action protests, including sit-ins at new subdivisions in Southern California that didn't allow blacks. And the California State Legislature in 1963 passed a law banning many forms of racial discrimination in housing, the Rumford Fair Housing Act, it was called, a great achievement, uh, but it was repealed by a statewide referendum. We're told the backlash against the Fair Housing Act that led to its repeal was caused by the Watts Rebellion of 1965. Is that correct? Well, chronologically, it's not correct because the Watts Rebellion came a year after the referendum, which the referendum was 1964, the Watts Uprising 65. So the Watts Uprising didn't cause people to go out and vote against fair housing. In November 1964, uh, as everybody knows, Lyndon Johnson won a landslide victory over Barry Goldwater, including in California, which he carried by over a million votes. Yet at that same election in California, Proposition 14, which not only repealed the Rumford, Rumsford Act you mentioned, but uh, banned the state from ever acting against housing discrimination, that passed by 2.1 million votes. So a lot of Democrats who voted for Lyndon Johnson must have all also voted to maintain housing uh, segregation or what he calls it in the title of his book, Freedom to Discriminate. Well, the referendum that repealed fair housing in California was the result of a powerful organization of California's real estate brokers. These are the licensed members of local and state real estate associations. They set the political and legal model for the entire nation, and they were careful not to argue in favor of segregation, not to argue that black people need to be restricted and controlled. What was their argument? Well, they picked up on uh, and utilized the most common word in our political vocabulary, which is freedom. This was freedom of choice, freedom to uh, choose who your neighbors were, who would live in your, uh, you know, in your community, uh, so that it was white people's freedom that was being protected. And they said, we're not against blacks. Uh, you know, they can go and find a house for themselves, but it's a but governmental action to force neighbors on uh, others uh, was a violation of individual freedom. Freedom of choice, the irony is this notion that people just have a right to choose whatever they want was a very common idea in the 60s on the left as well as the right. That language was in the air and uh, the realtors picked it up and used it to justify a pretty flagrant racial discrimination. So housing segregation was not simply the so-called natural outcome of homeowners' wishes to live among people like themselves. It had to be created and continually reinforced, and it faced a big problem, the Constitution of the United States and the 14th Amendment's guarantee of equal protection of the laws. Doesn't that include protection from laws that restrict where black people can buy houses? Well, there weren't actually laws which said black people can't live in this neighborhood or that neighborhood for the very reason you mentioned, the 14th Amendment enacted during Reconstruction, my favorite time period. Yes, said that all uh, people, not only citizens, are entitled to the equal protection of the laws. But unfortunately, the Supreme Court very early decided that 
the language is no state can deny you the equal protection of the laws. And they said, well, this means it's public officials or public actions that are banned. And in fact, early in the 20th century, when Louisville passed a residential segregation ordinance, that's state action, that's the government acting, uh, the Supreme Court knocked that down. They said, no, you can't do that. So the Supreme Court did say that cities cannot restrict blacks to particular neighborhoods, that it's unconstitutional for cities to do that. Nevertheless, American cities ended up being over segregated overwhelmingly in the in the next decades. How did the realtors get away with it? Well, the most important mechanism in California and in many other places was what they called racial covenants. In other words, in deeds, in mortgages, property documents would say, and almost all housing built in California had this for many decades, that the property could only be sold to members of the Caucasian race. There is no such thing as the Caucasian race. Nonetheless, these were not state actions. These were private agreements, contracts reached between realtors, between people buying a house, selling a house. Uh, and the Supreme Court for a long, long time said, well, that's not state action. That's individual choice. And the 14th Amendment doesn't uh, apply to that. This was one of the worst long periods of jurisprudence in the Supreme Court's history, the state action doctrine, which is still out there today and still being used. When the Supreme Court overturned the Violence Against Women Act, this is about 20 years ago, uh, making it a federal crime, uh, abusive, of, you know, violence against women, the Supreme Court said, no, you can't do that because individual, yeah, it's bad for people to murder women. We don't like that. But <laughs> There's not much we can do about it because it's not a state. It's not the government coming after you to commit acts of violence. So uh, the Congress can't legislate against it. So, yeah, it was these private actions. And then, of course, there were many other just patterns where realtors would refuse to show houses in numerous neighborhoods to black potential buyers. Or they would charge much more to a potential black buyer than to a white person with the same uh, economic means. There were public policies that were inherently discriminatory, particularly at the federal level. The Federal Housing Authority refused to give mortgages to people buying in integrated neighborhoods. They just marked those out as not worthy of federal assistance. Well, wasn't that discriminatory? They said, well, no, there's nothing to do with race. It's just economics. You know, these black people are poor. They lower property values. So, uh, you know, integrated neighborhoods just aren't up to standard, economically speaking. So nothing to do with race. It's just economic reality. That lasted a long time. But surely civil rights groups after World War II went back to court to challenge these private uh, covenants that the realtors included in all house sales. Right. Well, the, the, after World War II, when racism had been, uh, you know, considerably discredited by the Nazi uses of the idea of a master race, uh, yes, the Supreme Court began to move. In 1948, they said these covenants cannot be enforced in court. In a, that would be state action, the court actually saying a black person could move here and there. So, so you could sign it. But if if, a, if I want to sell my house to a black guy and I, it has a racial covenant on the deed, there's nothing anyone can do about it after that 1948 decision. They can't go to court and say, hey, you're violating this contract. But you still had racial covenants and most people still agreed with them or abided by them. 
So that didn't really help very much. It was not until 1968, at the very height of the civil rights era, that the Supreme Court finally said, no, housing discrimination is unconstitutional, whether it's done by the government, by realtors, by homeowners, anybody racially discriminating in housing. Why? It's a violation of the 13th Amendment, not the 14th, the 13th Amendment, which, of course, abolished slavery. Housing uh, discrimination is a badge of slavery, it said. It, can't, it must be abolished. And indeed, they just said it's, it's got to be abolished now, whether Congress acts or not. But of course, it was not so easy to enforce that. And as soon as Nixon got in and the Supreme Court began turning to the right again, 13th Amendment jurisprudence kind of uh, faded away. The larger idea that white people should have this kind of freedom, as you've said, this was not an original idea of the Realtors Associations. It's a very old idea in America. You've actually written a book about the history of this idea. Your book is called The Story of American Freedom. What is the story of American freedom in brief? <laughs> it's a long story, unfortunately, but um, the story is co conflict, contestation, different ideas of freedom. Obviously, black people had a different idea of freedom than these white realtors or most white Californians, it seems. Uh, they thought freedom meant the same access to the same opportunities, the same rights, the same ability to choose where you live as white people had. And the notion that, well, we're just defending the freedom of whites to discriminate uh, they didn't think that was a legitimate uh, use of the concept of freedom. There's another book recently published by the professor Tyler Stovall called White Freedom, which shows how from centuries back into the Enlightenment, many, many people on both sides of the Atlantic have felt that freedom is really something that only white people are entitled to and only white people are able to exercise intelligently and responsibly. So the notion that black people just don't figure in your discussions of freedom has a long history and the realtors are one little piece in a very long story of freedom. I believe it's time to write a new chapter for your book, the freedom not to get vaccinated, the freedom not to wear a mask. Well, we see that around today, obviously, and it is odd, but of course, freedom is such a, uh, it's a word that can be used for all sorts of purposes, as we all know, and we have seen it used for all sorts of purposes. Uh, you know, on this housing front, President Trump, when he was running for uh, election, re-election, uh, in one of his promises was that he would get out of the business of of fighting housing discrimination altogether. He said, we don't want to bother people who are living the suburban dream. Obviously, the suburban dream that he's talking about is a whites-only dream. It's a dream of living in a nice suburban house, which is a good thing, but only with white people as your neighbors. And Trump kind of embraced that. That was the suburban dream. And of course, remember, his father had built a lot of housing in New York, which famously excluded blacks altogether, although until he was forced by the courts to stop that kind of discrimination. The first time that Donald Trump's name appeared in the New York Times was when he and his father were sued by the government for discriminating against blacks in the Trump housing. Yes, but of course, Trump has said, I don't have a racist bone in my body, and shouldn't we believe what Trump says? <laughs> 
So housing discrimination is not simply the result of the natural outcome of homeowners' desire to live among people like themselves. It had to be created. It had to be continually reinforced. And the key to creating the legal basis for this was the political organization formed by the Realtors' Organizations. Eric Foner wrote about it for the LA Review of Books, reviewing the book Freedom to Discriminate by Gene Slater. Eric, thanks for talking with us today. Nice to talk to you. Thank you, John. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our sound editors are Will Broughton and Alan Minsky. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Living in the USA.